Welcome to Tomorrow. I'm your host, Joshua Sapolsky. Today on the podcast, we discuss cable news, global warming, and Black Lives Matter. But first, a word from our sponsors. USAA is passionate about what they do, ensuring the financial security of the military community and their families. As an employer, USAA creates conditions for employees to succeed. USAA is hiring for customer service reps, designers, developers, insurance, banking, and more. Visit them online and see over 200 jobs available. It's an organization that provides opportunities for you to collaborate, create, and lead. Find your purpose with USAA. Visit usaajobs.com and join the team. Ready to take your website to the next level? Whether you're a first-time blogger or an experienced web pro, HostGator has all the tools you need to create a website that's beautiful and powerful. HostGator even offers mobile-friendly templates so your audience can easily browse your site on the go. It's everything you need all in one place, all backed by 24-7 expert support. And right now, listeners to this show can get 60% off. Just visit HostGator.com slash tomorrow and take a bite out of the internet. My guest today is a brilliant independent journalist, formerly of Marketplace. Uh, I'm, of course, talking about Lewis Wallace. Lewis, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Very excited. We're working, I should say this, I'll preface this disclosure, we're working on some projects together that I'm very excited about. Um, and part of what I wanted to do, because I think people who listen to this podcast, probably not, maybe not all of them know you. So before we get into like current events of which there are many to talk about, um, can you give me like a, can you give like the listeners and give me like a short history lesson on your background, um, what you've been doing like in journalism? Cause we had a really interesting conversation of maybe like a month ago and you ran me through and I kind of didn't realize all the stuff that you've been doing and, and where you'd been doing it. Um, particularly around the election. So give me a little like history lesson. Tell me how you got started in journalism um, and and where that led. Yeah, sure. So I had been a community organizer in a variety of ways for a long time. And I was living in Chicago uh, a few years ago and working with an organization that works on juvenile incarceration, um, producing audio and video about youth encounters with police. And it was kind of out of that that I actually ended up in the world of journalism. I got a fellowship at WBEZ in Chicago, which is the big public radio station there. That's specifically for people who do community work to kind of diversify the station and connect the station to underrepresented and marginalized community. And I was working a lot with LGBTQ communities as well as um, youth who had been targeted by police violence. And uh, as soon as I stepped into WBEZ, I realized that radio journalism was what I wanted to do. And it became my passions, something that I loved. And, and so I became pretty much a straight news reporter. Um, went what, from, let me ahead. ask you, let me ask you a question. So, so, so what was it about radio journalism? Like, was it, was it, I mean, because like, I know a lot of people who write, right. And they're like, I just sit and I write and then I have this thing and I put it up or whatever. It's very specific. Like John Lagomarsino, our audio director is obsessed with this concept of telling stories in this way. What was it for you about that, that, that made it so interesting? Audio is so personal and the process of producing it is so interactive and collaborative and it's just a really exciting environment to go into. Uh, I had no idea before I started doing it that there was a line of work where you could just walk around with a microphone and kind of stick it in people's faces (laughs) and ask them really personal questions uh, and record all of that. (laughs) And uh, I just loved it. Um, It was so much fun, particularly the aspect of it. Uh, For me, that's about kind of being out in the field and reporting on, you know, untold stories and underrepresented communities, which is uh, something that 
WBEZ values a lot. The yeah. next station that I went to after WBEZ also had a similar kind of value of being really community driven as a public radio station. And that was WYSO in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Yeah. Which oh, is right outside right. of Dayton. <laughs> yeah. That's like deep in Ohio, right? Yeah. Deep in Southwest Ohio. So kind of north of Cincinnati. It's, it's interesting. Um, there seems to be, uh, I was just talking to a journalist recently, uh, who's now a full-time writer, but they, started in act at like activism and uh, community organizing. And there's an interesting through line. And I wonder if this is a more modern um, and maybe you have some insight here. I don't know, but like a more modern um, uh, thing that is happening where you see this, like this line. I mean, I get it. Like journalism is obviously like at its best has these like really kind of wonderful, beautiful pursuit, the pursuit of like truth and, and 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 it, you know sharing information with with an audience, but there's an interesting sort of crossover that seems to be happening between the worlds of activism, and and uh, and journalism. And I'm wondering, like, is that something you've seen a lot of in your career? Like, I mean, obviously that's where you came from. Is that was that common? Did you see people cross over in that way a lot? Yeah, well, I think on the activist side that a lot of activists and organizers have become more and more aware of kind of the power of storytelling and media and are using that. Yeah. I mean, the most sort of powerful and prominent example of that is Black Lives Matter, which in some ways is a storytelling organization, right? Yeah. It's an organization that produces media and draws attention to untold stories or yeah. stories that hadn't hadn't been making it into the mainstream news until Black Lives Matter pushed for that. And so it's not a coincidence at all for me that I was working on um, narratives about police violence before I became a journalist. Uh, certainly, I see a lot of connection there. Yeah. I also wonder on the journalism side, something I've been thinking about is, you know, how many women journalists I know who are feminists and who sort of come to journalism from a place that's kind of grounded in women's empowerment, women's equality, whether or not that's talked about in the organizations that, that they work in. Uh, I think that's, you right. know, often true. And yeah. in general, um, you know, people who have been systemically and historically marginalized and oppressed uh, have had to kind of push in different ways to get a seat at the table within journalism. And there's sort of an activism to even being there, you know, right. an activism to that. Right. Uh, but like, I, not only a seat at the table in journalism, but it's funny, like thinking, just hearing you talk about it and thinking about it, it's like, you know, there are stories that will remain untold unless somebody tells them and who would tell them like, okay, getting a seat at the table is one thing, but then getting other people to essentially have a seat at the table in like that canon of storytelling. I mean, you just see how the blind spots are so massive in, you know, and like, I feel like the media actually gets a lot of criticism, maybe rightfully so, where it tends to focus on, and I, I'll say, I guess we, cause we're a part of it and hopefully we're not doing those same things, but focusing on the same story over and over again. I mean, I think actually like we're very much like the outline. One of the things we've strived to do is like, let's not focus on the thing that everybody else, or let's try to find the other part of that. But, you know, you think about, it's not just about who, you know, where the story is told. It's really about who does tell the story and like what their visibility into, um, what their visibility into another world or another uh, narrative is. Yeah, and one example of that that I think about all the time, I mean, there are many, but um, disability is such a sort of huge range of, of issues and identities and potential stories yeah. uh, about which there's so little coverage in kind of 
the mainstream media and there are all these intersections that we've seen a little bit of reporting on when it comes to like disability and police violence and how many of the black people who've been killed by police have been actually people who also have a disability and yeah. how that factors recent, in and like there was like a big story recently right where it was about uh, someone with autism right the police shot or you know I don't know it was like one of those things where it's like the levels are kind of crazy, like to that point. It's like not just like, oh wow, there's racism or oh, there's this sort of systemic like training problem with the police, but then it's like there are a hundred other things that have nothing to do essentially with either of those things and our problems unto themselves, like that we're trying to solve and figure out. Yeah. And I think issues like that are often being talked about for years and years in in communities, you know, that are marginalized or that don't have as much representation in the media before they get picked up by yeah. mainstream media. Transgender issues are like an, another excellent example yeah. of that, yeah. um, where, you know, there's still not very many trans journalists working at the national level. Um, and just it's really just over the last few years that some of those stories have started to be portrayed in more complex ways or that there's been, you know, somewhat more representative coverage. There's yeah. also kind of the Caitlyn Jenner celebrity coverage <laughs> side of it. Yeah. Um, Which is uh, I, I'd be curious. Maybe we'll talk about this a little bit, like if that's helpful or not in that in those narratives. But it's but I will say this about about. Um, the the progress of like let's say coverage of trans issues like to me to, in my view as like a white guy in journalism like I will I feel like we have it's surprising how much more we are talking about it now like I you know the the leap has been to me so much more rapid I feel like growing up like growing up in like the 80s like and and in th through the 90s you look at like just in terms of like stories about, uh, you know, the gay community at all being part of the mainstream conversation were like non-existent forever. And it really felt like uh, uh, that was like, okay, now this is something we're talking about. Now it's okay to talk about it. But to me, it's like, I do feel like the track for oh, like getting, I mean, maybe this is the internet. Maybe it's because there are other ways into media that aren't just purely through like the gatekeepers that have always existed. But there has been a kind of a pretty huge accelerant poured on those stories, right? Like that yeah, suddenly like absolutely. a lot of people are talking. Yeah. And I, I do think the Internet has to do with it. I mean, I came out as transgender in the late 90s. And at that time, there was just there was like no representation yeah. of people like me, like a non-binary or genderqueer person. Or, you know, there might be a little story here and there about a person who'd had a sex change or yeah. something related to the politics of that uh, and sort of the the controversial idea that someone would have a sex change. But in terms of all the diversity um, within trans communities, as well as all the, the violence, um, the way that I learned about that was through zines, was through like paper you know, magazines that people yeah. sent back and forth. And so it's, those stories the, were being this, told. This in but, the, you're saying in the 90s? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, zines in the 90s, that's like, that makes sense. Yeah. It's actually kind of, that's interesting. Like, I'd love to, I don't know if anybody's done a history of that, but that seems really interesting to me as a, as a separate thing. Like, yeah. I have no awareness of that, of that piece of like zine culture. Right. And I feel like trans people, and I remember this, like, were, you know, probably some of the most dedicated customers of like Live Journal and like the early sort of blogging yeah. platforms and things like that, because it was the only place where right. you could find other people like you. And I mean, so that makes, that makes people were sense. so involved with that. Well, it's so interesting to, I mean, I, I, you know, not that my experience is anything like, you know, could be compared to somebody going through like that experience. But 
being a weird nerd like in the in the nineties growing and like finding on the internet the only places where those those are the places where I actually just was having a conversation about this the other day with somebody and it was like, you know, I kind of you see this weird thing that happened. Like I was this like very uh socially awkward like didn't feel like I had a place in life, like spent a lot of time on the internet finding communities on the internet where I felt like I people supported me and I felt like I could talk to people. And I think like for a lot of people that was true, certainly in the 90s, clearly like not just for, you know, regular lonely nerds, but like all sorts of different people. Um, and I think what's interesting is is to see how those communities have developed into – some of them have developed into kind of incredible forces for good in the world, and then others have developed into these, like, really corrupt, really dark, really evil, like, you know, you think about, like, the 4chans of the world or whatever, and it's like, that kind of was born out of the same culture where people were able to, like, find themselves and find their, like, you know, families, if not real families, their sort of new families. Anyhow, I, this is a, I'm on a tangent there, but, like, I, that's really interesting, like, to think about, to think about also, like, how that how zine culture is part of that because like in the 90s so i feel like i'm very oh, i feel sound very old right now like when i was a kid but um but you know like i was like into indie rock and then i was into like you know rave music and like all of that stuff was like had a very physical component to it where it was like flyers and zines and like trading cds and stuff like that so it's interesting like but of course i wasn't aware of like the you know a trans the the zine community in the, for the like for trans for trans people like in the 90s that didn't was non-existent to me but now it would be like impossible to not be aware of it like if you're on the internet essentially which is a good thing i think yeah yeah and and certainly trans activists have made and just trans people out in the world have made really good use of the internet um, it took a really long time, from my view, uh, for mainstream media organizations to start telling those stories. And yeah. they're still usually told by non-trans people. So that's, you know, it's definitely been an uphill battle. But. Yeah. And, and uh, sorry, we got off track. I'm sorry. I, we completely segued. But I, so wait, I want to go back because you were like in Ohio. Where were you working in Ohio? Oh yeah, WYSO <laughs> in Yellow Springs. So I want to like I wanted to go through a little <laughs> bit of the history. So you're in Ohio, you're doing radio, and how long did you do that for? I was there for almost three years. Um, through the sort of first part of the presidential primaries. So one of the last things that I did before I moved to New York for a job was covered a Donald Trump rally, one of the kind of notorious ones in Vandalia, Ohio, the morning after his rally in Chicago had been shut down by protests. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, which which it seems like a footnote now. Like, there are so many insane protests. And it's like, oh, yeah. No. But that was the first, I remember that rally was the, the one that was shut down, uh, was the first, I felt like, really clear indicator publicly that something was fucking wrong. Like, there is something weird about, like, what was going on with Trump. That it wasn't just like, oh, wow, people are riled up about, like, the, the reality TV star. Can you talk about the – we talked a little bit um, about you and I, not on this podcast, uh, about that rally. Can you talk about the one that you attended in in Ohio? Yeah. So a lot of it, I think, would, would fit with what people have heard about these rallies. I mean, thousands of people, more people than I'd ever seen in a Dayton suburb, lined up really, really early in the morning and had come from all over. It was almost entirely white. And the Shock, mood was kind of 
um, you know, positive and excited going in. Um, and then the speech, particularly coming off of what had happened in Chicago the night before, which I think Trump felt a little bit vaguely humiliated about. Um, the speech was very dark. <laughs> um, yeah, and humiliated sort of, Trump is a bad Trump. Sort of aggressive. And there were protesters who were interrupting every like five to 10 minutes, someone would interrupt and then they would get dragged out. And as the speech went on, the crowd got more and more kind of riled up and um, angry. And Trump was really encouraging that. And then that was the uh, that was the speech when somebody rushed the stage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, everybody saw on TV, he sort of like ducked and put his hands over his head. And um, it was a college kid. It was like a theater student who wanted to grab the <laughs> mic and say, like, end white supremacy. Right. Didn't make it to Fuck the mic, Trump but was charged with a felony. Uh, afterwards. Yeah, so anyway, it was it was a lot of drama. Um, I heard some very disturbing things just in the speech. One of them that I may have told you about before was that story that he told about General George Pershing dipping the bullets in pig's blood and then shooting, quote unquote, Muslim terrorists yeah. with the with the uh, bullets. Yeah, no, I remember. I don't, and I don't think that was the first time he talked about that, but I remember the hearing about it and I was like what the fuck is this guy talking about it was really distressing it was the second time he told the story before in Charleston um, but oh. the thing that I noticed about that day there were a lot of things but something that I really noticed was that that story which would have just been kind of an outrage like six months before that in the national media wasn't no. even the news of the day it didn't even make it into the national right. news reports right. about that day like it was far from being the most dramatic thing that happened in the 24-hour news cycle um, yeah, even though it was like an outrageous story <laughs> yeah i mean the gist of the story is that like it's like extra offensive to kill someone who's muslim by like killing them with a bullet that's dipped in pig's blood because I mean, it, the idea of it is is so reprehensible. The idea of a person running for president in the United States saying it is crazy. But, but what's really shocking is the idea that, like, we – it's, like, not even a big deal anymore. Right. And the implication of the story was that um, America used to be, you know, tougher on this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he law and order. This is – you know, he's the law and order president. So, so okay. So you're, you're covering – I mean, you're in the middle of Ohio. You're covering crazy Trump rallies. And then you went to work at Marketplace. Yep. This, am I jumping ahead? Uh, yep. No, that's what happened in the Bureau in New York. So I'd been a contributor for a few years from the flyover states and um, then moved to the New York City Bureau to do daily news there. And I was there for about eight months um, doing also feature stories quite a bit about wealth and poverty and housing and um, racial inequality, the growing racial wealth gap. I went to Detroit, I went to Florida and Georgia to report some of those stories. Um, and I didn't end up being there for long because I got fired. And yeah. That so, so this is something I want to talk about and and is it kind of critical? It's actually how I became aware of the stuff that you had been doing and what you were, you know, obviously going to do next. But I want to take a quick break and then we'll be right back and we're going to talk about it. You can't build tomorrow's innovation on yesterday's technology. That's why leading companies around the world trust the Couchbase data platform to power their modern web, mobile, 
and IoT applications. Couchbase offers unsurpassed agility and unparalleled performance at any scale in an easy-to-operate platform. Plus, it allows you to manage billions of records and terabytes of data, all while supporting millions of users. The Couchbase data platform includes Couchbase Server, which has SQL-like querying with high-performance indexing, Couchbase Lite, which is the first mobile NoSQL database, and Couchbase Sync Gateway, which keeps your data center and mobile services in sync. Couchbase is designed for global deployments and has configurable cross-data center replication built right in. See for yourself why leading companies like Cisco, eBay, GE, Marriott, and Verizon are taking advantage of Couchbase's many unique capabilities. Use Couchbase to start transforming your customer experiences today. Learn more at couchbase.com slash tomorrow. That's couchbase.com slash tomorrow to learn more about how you can build web, mobile, and IoT applications with Couchbase. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Thankfully, for less than 10 bucks a meal, Blue Apron delivers delicious, quality food, courtesy of over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S., right to your door, supporting the more sustainable food system and setting the highest standards for ingredients. Plus, with Blue Apron's freshness guarantee, you can be sure that every ingredient in your delivery will arrive ready to cook, or they'll make it right. It's no wonder they are the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the entire country. Ryan was telling me the other day he had a delicious spinach pizza. He said that he made it, uh, it was a meal for two, but he ate it all himself. That's what he told me. And I was shocked, but also impressed. Some of the upcoming meals in April include spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salata. Could be something you might be interested in. Sweet and sour salmon with bok choy, carrot, and ginger fried rice. That sounds delicious. Parmesan crusted chicken with creamy fettuccine and roasted broccoli. There's a lot of big words in that one. And baby broccoli and fontina paninis with hard-boiled egg and arugula salad. These sound insane, but they're also insanely delicious. Don't take my word for it. Just ask Ryan. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash tomorrow. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Stop waiting. That's blueapron.com slash tomorrow. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. We're back with Lewis Wallace. So you're at Marketplace. Um, Trump wins the election. Tell me if I have this timeline wrong. And you decided to write a piece or you felt compelled to write something. You wrote a sort of a personal essay uh, or just some personal thoughts on on Medium. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So this was actually right after the inauguration. Oh, okay. And oh, is that, there was been... that much of a gap from, okay. Mm-hmm. So I guess r- my timeline's all, it's all a blur, a, a dark blur to me. After the election, I went almost directly from New York to Ohio to kind of cover the environment there post-election and met with a lot of people, um, people of color in that community who were very afraid about the uh, kind of immediate spike in racist violence that had happened directly after the election and this... Uh, sense of fear around the possible increase in deportations and um, just a lot of fear on on one side. Um, And then there was also a lot of celebration and a lot of not surprise in in Ohio as compared to 
in New York where there were a lot of people sitting in newsrooms going like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. Um, but in, <laughs> right. in Ohio, a lot more people kind of saw it coming. So it was but the really, people in the newsrooms in Ohio saw it coming? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. yeah. Because, um, you know, it really is a mixed community there in Southwest Ohio and reflective of pretty much all of the dynamics that then sort of exploded into the national news when when people realized, oh, this is real. Uh, including the dynamics around white supremacy. Anyway, a few months past, I, I did a bunch of postmortem stories as we all were doing uh, in Marketplace's newsroom. And I went and covered the inauguration, um, not for Marketplace, but making my own recordings at the inauguration events. And so I had been there and seen the kind of, you know, trickly crowd on the day of the inauguration and then seen the uh, outrageously huge crowd on the day of the women's march and then you know came in on monday and watched the kelly on conway moment from tv that weekend where she had uh talked about alternative facts mm -hmm. and that uh, trump's mm -hmm. claim that there had been more people at the inauguration than obama's inauguration um was just an, an alternative fact yeah and so i was kind of having a personal moment of crisis and questioning what the point is of what we do in newsrooms because I, you know, I believe in reporting the facts. I love that process. Right. Uh, and there's a sense that we're like fighting against something almost bigger than that when you have people at such a high level of power who can just completely dismiss facts. And so I, I was thinking about the implications of that and wrote a blog post for my personal medium blog that was called objectivity is dead and I'm okay with it. And uh, it didn't really make just one argument, but a few of the issues that I brought up um, or this idea that objectivity, journalistic objectivity and journalistic neutrality have never really been real. They've always been kind of contested spaces yeah. um, and that none of us can be neutral on our own kind of humanity in a sense. And so whether, you know, for me as a transgender person, um, for people who might be targeted in different ways by not just Trump's policies, but the policies of any government, right? Um, that it's, it's uh, hard to be neutral in a debate about your own humanity. And then I would also argue in a lot of ways that there's a lot of non-neutrality that comes from a place of privilege as well. So the stories, as we talked about already on this podcast, that aren't being told because of who's not in the newsroom. Right. Right. And sort of a bias towards stories about people who are also white and upper middle class and educated. Right. Uh, that plays out all, all, all the time. And so my argument was, you know, that it, it's OK that there's no neutrality. And, and what we need to do as news organizations in this moment is kind of figure out what we do stand for and be even more aggressive about telling the stories of people who are oppressed, be even more aggressive about diversity in newsrooms, um, be even more aggressive about kind of the defense of free speech at an institutional level. So not the form of free speech where people talk about anyone can say anything anywhere, right. um, but at an institutional level when you have journalists who are being arrested, um, you know, that's a real sort of institutional yeah. violation which of free which speech happened rights. happened at the, uh, at the uh, inauguration. Right, and yeah. had happened to a public radio journalist at a Black Lives Matter protest uh, just a couple months before and, you know, hardly even talked about or covered. Yeah, and so yeah. my sense is that it, it was and is time in some ways for journalism organizations who care about the truth to take the gloves off and kind of say, this is what we stand for and are about. So I published that on my personal blog uh, with a kind of caveat that said, you know, these are just my views and it's stuff that I'm thinking about. And what do you guys think? Thinking that I would 
promote some sort of conversation among fellow journalists about right. how to cope with with this moment, this time period that in some ways felt really overwhelming. Um, a couple hours after I published it on my blog, I got a phone call from uh, some sort of higher up managers at Marketplace, the executive producer and the managing editor that I was going to be suspended from being on air and um, needed to take the blog post down. So mm -hmm. initially I did that um, after sleeping on it for a second night, I ended up deciding to put the post back up and kind of laid out why uh, for my employers at the time and said, you know, that I think um, trust in the news media is, as we know, kind of <laughs> borne out by statistics, extremely, extremely low. Yeah. And yeah. people don't believe us when we say that we're not biased um, or that we're completely neutral. And in some ways, I feel like that ship has already sailed. And so I suggested that you know, maybe rather than sort of punish me for openly saying something that a lot of people are saying privately or behind closed doors in newsrooms right. or already. At least, or at least thinking. <laughs> or at least thinking. Yeah. Um, w what if somebody from Marketplace uh, rebutted me and we had that conversation publicly? So, you know, yeah. I, me and a colleague go back and forth and sort of say, well, here are the problems raised by that. Right. Um, you know, if we abandon objectivity, how do we report stories fairly about X, Y, Z? And I think these are really important and interesting questions that yeah, most journalists are thinking about. Um, so that was what I suggested, just sort of this uh, not a new idea in the world, but what might have been a new idea for a marketplace of kind of taking up more um, transparency about how we do the work that we do. Right. Um, which interests me and I think would interest our audiences. Um in any case, I, I sent a letter to my bosses um, suggesting that idea and and also kind of laying out um, my perspective on this uh, perceived line between politics and um, or sorry, between activism and journalism and how in some ways for, for me, because of my identity, that's a very false line because I'm kind of always on right. the front lines of the trans struggle no matter what I'm doing because I'm like visible as a trans person in, right. in every situation. Right. Uh, and so it's just, it's just sort of silly. I, I can't really not have in some ways a, um, an activist orientation toward whether right. or not I can use a bathroom, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Like, like your existence is you have to battle like that on a certain front, like it in whether you want to, or whether you want right. to be, in that conversation or not, like you're in the conversation. It's politicized. Yeah. My identity yeah. is politicized whether I, and that wasn't a position that I chose, right? right? And so that's sort of something that I'm always in and a lot of people I know are always in. Um, and I articulated all of that uh, in a letter and um, got a call to meet the CEO of the organization or the, the VP of the organization a couple days later and was fired from my job. Yeah. See, I think, I, I mean, to me, I think this is like the great, one of the great, first of all, I, I think you're hundred percent right. I think this view from nowhere, this gray area, um, like, I think there can be places where you can maintain objectivity, where you can say like, I'm, it, it's fine to say like, I can look at this in a neutral way, but also it's possible to say I can look at it in a neutral way, and but I personally feel this way about something, you know? Like it, it is possible for human beings to use their intellect 
a little bit in a little bit more of a sophisticated manner than like I um, I vote Democrat and I'm pro-choice, therefore I can't possibly report on a pro-life story with any level of fairness. Like that's not actually the, the way that people operate. But like there is something that's really misleading and and a little bit like to me, I feel like almost more detrimental to the process of journalism about this idea that we're all in this gray zone between like this side and that side and that we don't have opinions and that when you report on it, that it's not infused by your experience or your opinion or, 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 um, you know, a million other factors. Like I would actually prefer that I knew from a journalist where they leaned when they wrote something or when they talked about something, like it's actually useful to me to be able to go like, Oh, like I agree with your point, even though I know you're coming from a totally different, like I, it's actually, there will be places where it's better. But I think that the idea that we would want to maintain this false this false position, which I don't think has ever truly existed in journalism historically. I think that the idea that it exists is a very modern construct that that you have this like middle of the road position. I mean, the most famous newspapers in the world were certainly never middle of the road about their positions. And so, yeah, I, I feel like it's crazy. And I think it's crazy for them to have, it's crazy to keep propagating the myth. I think it does erode an audience's trust because they go, well, I think this person is bullshitting me. They can't possibly be down the middle when I feel that there's something else driving this narrative. And you see in the New York Times, the New York Times is so desperate to pre present themselves as a uh, centrist publication. And the New York Times historically is not a centrist publication. And they've had their moments of warmongering or their moments of like leaning into the right. But they tip more often than not, they're they're from they're a New York publication and they have there's a certain set of like New York, the New York values that we hear all about. So I think it's interesting that their reaction was um to fire you. What was like what what did they say? Like what what was the reasoning there? Was it just like if you don't think you can be objective when you report like we don't think you can work here? Was that as simple as that? More or less. I mean, the the marketplace ethics policy has a puts a restriction on reporters expressing their political views in public. Um, oh. And uh, oh, there was also some back and forth about the role of neutrality and objectivity in the policy. It talks about impartiality, um, which it to me is, is like a slightly different concept and wasn't one that I'd addressed in the post, but the policy talks about impartiality. And so I was told, you know, marketplace believes in impartiality and in objectivity and neutrality. And so essentially you can't be out there representing us um, with a, with a different view. Marketplace um, believes in robots. We are just getting totally neutrally programmed robots to do the report. I don't but I just think that, um, yeah, I think that's such a wrong, such a bad place to go right now. I mean, that pursuit of objectivity is creates so many false equivalencies in reporting that are so damaging. You know, I think that not to go, not to, not to try to um, litigate, relitigate like the Hillary situation, but I think you look at how the New York Times sort of blasted the FBI, you know, shocking revelations or whatever, and I feel like in a pursuit of showing that they were that they could be tough on both candidates but it's like you've got a candidate who's definitely fit to be president who's got problems and then you've got a person who is in no way fit to be president who has problems and it's like you can't treat those people are not the equivalent thing right they're not the same and so i feel like we end up in all of these traps that create you know not fake news because that's a whole other thing <laughs> but create um bad journalism. Yeah. You know? And I, and I found 
you know, even particularly since my firing in a lot of ways that just I think so much of that is about perception, is about the, this idea that some types of news organizations, not all, yeah. have that it's important to be perceived yeah, as optics. neutral. It's about the optics. Yeah, it's about the optics, yeah, yeah which yeah. Is, is sort of just for, for me personally kind of a hard framework to swallow because I'm interested in the truth and yeah. I'm interested in kind of dissecting and talking about power and when and like, the optics don't serve that you know too bad so sad and it's um, like and it's like things things that are real and provable and i know there's always an art there's always another argument but there's also like consensus and there's also you know who your sources are and it's like you can you can always find a person to deny climate climate change or to say uh well you know god this winter was really cold so what's you know what's this uh, global warming all about but like the reality is like if you've got uh, by the way i'm sort of referencing brett stevens who's this new we talked about a little bit before we started this new columnist that's been hired by the uh, the new york times from the wall street journal he's a climate change denier he's like says like you know the arab mind is diseased because there's like it's like genetically anti-semitic or something just like really just a, a load of bad ideas right and the idea is like they're like we want to create more diversity on our op-ed pages right and when their idea this idea of diversity is like we want a person who says the opposite of what good journalists say essentially it's like that's the that's what they're asking they're not asking for a guy who's like oh wow he's got really rigorous arguments his arguments are not rigorous. They're badly formed. They're heavily, I mean, of course it's op-ed, so it's opinion, that's fine, but they aren't, but it's like you don't reach better understanding by accepting bullshit. You know, I mean, like you yeah, just don't. Yeah. Like, 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 like the problem for a, for a Trump supporter is like, I understand the hardships of, sorry, I don't mean to just be rambling here, but I, I do tend to do that. Um, but like, I understand the financial hardships of like middle America of, of the Rust Belt where there is like a whole range of things happening that have like fucked up people's lives. But also I think it's really important to say like Trump is a liar. Trump is racist. Trump is xenophobic. Trump has bad ideas. Trump has no plan. Trump has a terrible support system around him. Like all of the things that are true that people have said about Trump and it's not partisan and it's not biased to say it is just a fact. And like we now see the fact playing out in the highest office in the country. And it's like, this is not a surprise to me. It's probably not a surprise to you. But to the people who read Breitbart and watch Fox, they must be very shocked that Trump seems to be doing a bad job. Or they don't think he's doing a bad job because they live in a bubble. Anyhow, the point is, it's very frustrating. So the, your idea that, like, of course you couldn't just be in the gray Makes sense, but like, how do you convince a world? I mean, this is you're you're writing a book on this, right? Is yeah, I'm writing about the history of objectivity and sort of its development as a framework in journalism in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Who started it? Why that is? Um, it was kind, of, you know, kind of a moment, like a, an, is it a British? An era. Was it a British thing? Um, no, the okay. I'm always uh, watching the British. You, gotta, <laughs> you can't be too careful with them. At least the form of objectivity that we know in U.S. journalism is very much a U.S. kind of construct, mm -hmm. um, and it had a lot to do with the same moment when news started to be distributed over news wires, um, as well as penny papers. And so suddenly, technologically, there was this capability to distribute short 
news stories Blogs. way more widely than mm-hmm. they had been able to be distributed before. And so before that, every newspaper was a partisan paper right. before the late 1800s. I mean, and they, then they, people they, realized, oh, we could sell like potentially twice as many papers if we mm-hmm. made a paper that wasn't affiliated yeah, with a political party. So, Because literally the, the people who own newspapers were like these politicians or not politicians, like like rich guys who just wanted to like blast out their message essentially like yeah, a, a, a yeah. lot of these a lot of these you know the hearsts or whatever yeah not. and it was sort of part propaganda part news but in any case it was how people got information so then there was this kind of business model that that came into play that was like oh we could distribute this more widely we could distribute it to anyone across political party so we need to stay out of the partisan fray and a lot of the so-called nonpartisanship of american newspapers started in that moment and that was right around the same time as the professionalization of journalism so journalism schools started opening up right around 1900 and then sort of teaching these as ideas or ideals you know nonpartisanship, neutrality etc and of course this was almost completely exclusive to white men who were going to these schools and who are then getting these qualifications for this new profession (laughs) but you know it's it's funny it's like i support i do at its kind of core i'm like it's a wonderful idea. It's like a, a kind of a lofty, like lovely concept to be able to say, I mean, if you could do it the right way, which would not be saying like everybody needs a fair shake, like because that isn't the like I think we've replaced the concept of objectivity, which is like, you know, don't come into this with the story already decided. Figure out what the story, which is like what good journalism is, is like figure out what the real story is and then report the facts of the story. The idea that you come in with a tainted view, you know, I think is is only part of the is only part of the issue, right? But like, you know, if it could be done, if you could say, well, uh, uh, you know, I'm coming into the story and I have no predisposition and no, my view isn't limited because I was raised this way or that way or I came from this place or that place. Like, it becomes a sure that's perfect in the perfect world version of it. But like to the thing we were talking about earlier about who tells the story. You you immediately enter. I mean, you know, with you, you immediately enter the story with a different worldview, and yeah. and that has to be. It cannot be as abstracted from the reporting process. It doesn't mean like you're making up facts, but it's like if you see something that somebody else doesn't see, it doesn't mean it's not real. It just means they can't see it, and I think that's a huge deal. I think in a lot of our journals, I mean, that idea about the same people doing it, like white men like traditionally, historically doing it. It's like it was very easy probably to agree on the concept of objectivity when you're like, we all went to the same schools and we all had the same upbringing. We basically all know the same thing. So this shouldn't be very difficult. It seems obvious that there would be this sort of scientific process to telling a story that would result in the most fair version of the story told. And, you know, there's there's no (laughs) no better sort of, I think, allegory, but also reality for that than the way that Uh, stories about police murders of of black people have been told, right? That for decades it seemed obvious to the mainstream media that it was fine to essentially say, um, you know, so-and-so was shot and killed, police narrative is such and such. That's the end. That's the story. That's the whole story. Yeah, but we still And do. the only reason that that changed was because of people agitating from the outside. And, right. and now those stories are being told in, in different ways. But it's still it's still so prevalent. I mean, that's that method of 
speaking, of writing is still so prevalent. There was um, the story about the the guy who came to New York and stabbed. He stabbed like a, he was like looking for someone, a person of color, a black guy to kill. Killed a black man in New York. And the and the story I saw a headline from the L.A. Times and it was like he was like former army sergeant, you know, arrested on charges of whatever. And it's like he's not a that doesn't matter. Like we don't we're not talking about the guy and how his like illustrious past was. I mean, it, it's crazy the way that like the 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 grooves are so worn in mm-hmm. in journalism in the way that people talk. And by the way, I'm not like. I think some of that stuff is good. Some of it works. Like some of those grooves work, right? Like it's not like we throw out all of journalism because like some of it's not working. But there is that that idea that it's like how you don't even see like you the, – the people who make this stuff can't even fathom the other way of doing it because they're just – it doesn't exist to them. It's like total – and it's not even tunnel vision. It's just like a lack of visibility, you know, mm-hmm. getting to that – back to that point again. But it's like, you okay, they didn't write that headline in the, in the LA Times because they wanted to be malicious – they wrote it because their awareness of how they might have written it differently doesn't exist. And like, you know, that's partially education, but it's also partially just changing who writes the headline. And I think that, yeah, it's a, it's a I mean, to me, like, this is something we think about here. We talk about all the time. It's like just telling that, that different story and telling it from a different perspective, but it is very hard. Like even to, you know, in my, I'm not, I didn't go to J school. I'm not like a, I didn't like when I was 12, I wasn't like, I'm going to be a, journalist you know it wasn't like that i kind of fell into this but even in my limited run of doing it it's like um every day is a crash course in figuring out what you're doing wrong and i feel like i can i have to learn that because everything i everything i do is new and nobody is going to give me anything but like the new york times doesn't have to learn it and the post doesn't have to learn it and like all these huge institutions and 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 still the CNNs of the world are like leading the conversation on these things. Like CNN, they are like one of the worst offenders, in my opinion. Of like, they actually are like, we aren't objective. They're like, we're sent. We have a center. We're going to give a platform to everybody. And there's like, and we'll let the non-objective party speak. But even in that partisan sort of like argument, it's it's filled with this idea with this false objectivity that is like really, really destructive, you know? Right. And that's a frame and and in and of itself a value. Although I would argue that the values underlying a lot of cable TV news are are sort of just about profitability. Right. It's not you I know? mean that is true. They basically are like, oh, people love people, to see people will watch fight. this and so we're gonna put it on. Right. You know? Um, right. but when it comes to the the I think large swaths of US journalism that are trying to do, you know, trying to tell real stories and trying to get facts a- across for a reason uh, there there is always some sort of value system underlying that and you know I think we're in a moment that really calls for looking honestly at what that value system is rather than kind of avoiding it because it's uncomfortable or because it might be bad for optics to sort of say yeah. you know here's what why would you tell a story about um, about torture um, it's, it's because Torture's wrong, right? Right. That, that, that's well. Is it? <laughs> we don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you know what's well, Trump saying? Yeah, and and so you know, and those standards can change in a society. Right. Oh, Not everybody on, thinks torture. They're fucking is wrong. changing already. I mean, we are. We we Trump has been president for less than a hundred days, and they're changing. I mean, it's like I used to think torture was wrong, and then Trump told me not to. So now I love it. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, it's but it is true that like we we you see how rapidly I even feel in myself. I'm like. 
I disagree with everything that Trump says, but then I am every once in a while now I'm like, and actually this argument about like, are we being object, you know, are we being objective? Are you too partisan? Is it like, you know, I actually find myself going like, wait, do I just think this because I'm siding with like the left or the Democrats or this like school of thought, you know? And I know like the ideas are wrong and bad, but you see how like this chipping away happens of like logic, right? Just like you you hear the message so much and you see it so much and you hear so many other people talk about it, you start to go like, well, wait, am I missing something here? Like, is there some, I'm not questioning my own beliefs, but you do see how um, people build a narrative that is very convincing. And like, even if you have been well-educated and even if you know where you stand and you know where you've always stood, there is still that, you know, if anybody can crack a little bit of your reasoning around it or a little bit of like what you believe in, it's like that gives, there's a window there. And I think like when you think about the rest of the country, I I spend every day reading the news, right? All I do is like look at the news and try to like learn things. Most people aren't doing that. Most people have, that's not their job. They have other things to do. So if you only get like a half an hour of their attention every day or an hour of their attention and what you're saying is like vile hate speech, it, it does actually matter. It does have an impact. I mean, going back to that rally, it's like those weren't normal rallies in America. There's like – no, there have been plenty of rallies like that in American history. But that wasn't normal in our political process. Mitt Romney didn't have rallies like that. George W. Bush didn't even have rallies like that. I think Sarah Palin kind of did have rallies like that. And Sarah Palin have a lot. It has a lot in common with Trump. Okay, so I know you have to go. Sorry, I'm rambling now, and you've got to run. But really quickly, before you do go, who's doing it right? Like, what do you look at? What do you see? Who do you read? Like, what do you? Who's like saying things? I mean, it could be a publication, a journalist, a, even a single story. Like, what have you seen that's like, wait, there's hope for journalism and there's good things. And this is not a fish for an outline compliment at all. Just to be clear, I'm just curious. Like, I. I I feel like there's a couple of things I look at now and I'm like, and Mother Jones, I think, has done some really good, really like aggressive reporting on this and isn't plain. There's no like, we're going to be objective and tell you know the whole story, you know, because there isn't a whole story. What do you see that's good? Like, what do you feel hopeful about? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of things to feel hopeful about right now in this moment. And I'm actually maybe kind of ironically not one of those people who has a really kind of dark view of the future of the media and what's going to happen. Like, I I actually think the internet and podcasts and the whole digital revolution has opened up so many things in a way that I'm excited and happy about. Um, So, I mean, I read and listen to such a wide variety of types of publications. Some of my favorites range from, like, I I read a lot of Washington Post, you know, I read the New York Times. I don't think it's bad what they're doing. That's the thing. It's like, the Times actually is fucking great. It's just sometimes they do really dumb things. Yeah. And so do all of us. Right. And in that way, like journalism is also it's hard. It's aspirational. Yeah, It's, <laughs> it's a work. Not, it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. Yeah. Um, Reveal is a really amazing investigative podcast hosted by Al Letson, mm. who's somebody who will really bring himself kind of into the story in ways that are effective and interesting and honest and um, just an an excellent host. I'm always looking for something new to listen to. Yeah, um, that's a good one. Uh, So Al Letson is definitely a a journalism hero of mine. Um, I'm also a big ProPublica reader. So, you know, anything investigative. And I'm a big fan of um, the station where I used to work, WYSO. It's like a small, just like super low budget community organization kind of public radio station in the middle of Southwest Ohio that's 
doing so much to kind of bring together disparate voices and um, bring stories on air that aren't being told and do that in really creative ways. Doing so much with so little. So I think sometimes when I hear from these big and, you know, comparatively much better funded media organizations, like, you know, it's too hard to like dig in to these communities or it's too hard to know what's going on everywhere. Um, To me, often it feels like a matter of priorities. And that's where I feel like the values are important, sort of outlining why we're doing this so that we can figure out what to prioritize. Yeah. Um, WISO is someplace that has always been very clear that uh, actually its founding statement includes the idea that this is a radio station that's going to take discussions about politics and current events out of the ivory towers and out of the sort of elite and like into the streets. And that's the idea behind that, this, and, that station. And this is in Ohio. That's the station in mm-hmm. Ohio. That's so, it's a, it, what's so interesting about that is like, now, I mean, truly, like, and you know, I don't want. I'm not going to be like the tech guy with like, oh, the internet is the great leveler. But there is an element to the idea that you can now listen to those. I assume they're online. Mm-hmm. You can listen to those broadcasts where you would never hear them. Go back 25 years, and you would never hear them. Go back 50 or 100. It's like they're well, they probably don't exist 50 or 100. But like this idea that you know, it's like, well, we're not getting all the stories, or we can't hear all the sides. And it's like, well, maybe you're not listening. Like, maybe you're not actually striving to find the sides. And it's like, we think we've got to like, beef up this other perspective, when the reality is like, there's a lot of that perspective that's out there, if you actually pay attention. Yeah. And I think, you know, of course, you can't do all the stories, nobody can, but that's why it matters that we know why we're doing them. Yeah. Well, that's a really good place to leave it. Um, Lewis, thank you so much for doing this. This is really good. I'm sorry that we kind of rushed through some things, but uh, this is super fascinating. And um, we're doing some very cool stuff together. And when you do that, hopefully you can come back and we can talk about it maybe. Sounds good. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. I have a little announcement to make. Uh, we're going to be taking tomorrow to a bi-weekly schedule uh, for a while. Uh, my schedule is a little bit insane right now, and I want to give you guys really great shows that you can sink your teeth into. And we think the most effective way to do that is just to ease back a little bit on the weekly schedule. Uh, but we also have some great new uh, audio to listen to at the outline. If you're interested, we've got a wonderful new daily show called World Dispatch. I highly recommend you subscribe to it. That way you get a little... Uh, a flavor, a little extremely spicy flavor in your morning diet every day of the week, except for Friday, uh, and then and then I'll greet you in a sort of normal interval. I think you'll, I think you're really gonna like this rhythm. I think you're gonna find it very sexy and comfortable. And until then, I wish you and your family the very best. Though I've just received word that your family is no longer capable of being objective, and therefore all debates have become quite difficult. <laughs>